Wow. I love David Williams and everybody else. That's great. Well, uh, I am an expert at putting people to sleep. <laughs> Just ask all the people that are in the role. They're, look at that. They're already making themselves comfortable, the men from my church. Thank you very much, you guys. That's a real encouragement. Uh, I certainly appreciate that kind of forethought that has gone into the planning. The next logical step is a nap, right? The next logical step, I, I, I really do appreciate the, the forethought that has gone into this uh, from Pastor Jacob and, and the elders here uh, putting this together. And it really is uh, the intercession of Christ. I've, I've, I've uh, seen this now all morning, just this building toward now this present ministry of Jesus Christ. And so uh, you can be turning in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be looking primarily this afternoon at one verse, and that is verse 25. So much to see in each one of these uh, sub-themes, I guess we could call them, this afternoon and all morning long, uh, in looking at who Jesus is, his person, uh, who he is and what he has done, his work, what he's already done for us. Man, there's been some rich truth that we've been able to, uh, to feed on here uh, today. And we also have maybe had some uh, just sneak peeks at what he will do for us as well in the future, but as Jacob already said there's another part of his work that we simply cannot afford to miss. And so I'm so glad that this is part of a conference on the person and work of Christ. That is the ministry of Christ in the present tense. Even now, Jesus Christ is acting on our behalf. He didn't finish his work on earth and say, I'm just going to wait it out now until the end. No, even now. He is working on our behalf, and namely, in his, his present work for us, is as intercessor. In looking at this element of the work of Christ, I'd like to just uh, very simply ask three questions this afternoon, and then, of course, seek to answer them from Scripture. They are the questions, what, why, and how? What is an intercessor? Why do we need an intercessor? And how can we be confident that our intercessor will, in fact, be heard. So that's our simple framework. First question, what is an intercessor? Well, it's not a word that we use maybe a whole lot in everyday language, um, but every single one of us, I would say, is familiar, if not with the word, with the concept. An intercessor is someone who makes an intervening plea on behalf of someone else. This person may also be called a, a go-between, a mediator, an advocate. And each one of these terms inherently implies three parties, the presence of three parties. Of course, most obviously, it would be the one doing the interceding. That would be the intercessor. But it also implies the one on, whom behalf, on, on whose behalf intercession is being made and the one to whom intercession is being made. We understand this dynamic even on a merely human level don't we i have a brother that is two years older than me and he's a pretty tough dude and when we were growing up he developed i'm afraid that toughness on me okay i am the reason he's tough i should remind him of that from time to time how many of you can relate by the way you know maybe youngest child isn't it tough being the youngest child oh, it's just yeah it's very difficult but as much as my brother liked to beat up on me uh, just enough to keep me humble, I really knew 
deep down I knew that if push came to shove and I was being threatened, he would plead my case. And often he wouldn't have to do that with many words at all, right? This happened a couple times in the schoolyard in the neighborhood where some oversized, you know, junior high, uh, junior high kid with an inferiority complex would be standing over me, breathing out threatenings and slaughter, right? And my brother would actually come, that happened a couple times, he'd come in between us, between me and the bully. And one time I remember my brother saying a really original phrase, something like, why don't you go pick on someone your own size? And I, I was like, yeah. What he said, right? All of a sudden, very confident, just a surge of confidence in my brother's presence. If even for those moments alone, he was my advocate. He was my go-between. As long as he was there, at least, I had confidence. So even on a merely human level, there are situations where we greatly benefit from the, the presence of an intercessor, somebody who intervenes to plead our case. But we find in Scripture that we have a greater need for an intercessor. We have a deep need for an intercessor. It's not just between us and some other human being. We need an intercessor between us and God. And this is where that example of my big brother breaks down big time. Because we are not innocent weaklings standing over against some kind of divine bully. No, we are the fallen ones. We are the rebels against a God who, the God who made us. We need someone to plead our case before almighty God, who is holy, 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 completely without sin. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is that intercessor. Romans 8.34, Paul writes, Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God, that he is even now interceding for us. He's pleading our case before the Father. So we know what an intercessor is. The next question is, why do we need an intercessor? And in one sense, we already answered that question in brief, right? We need an intercessor because we are sinners. That's certainly true. But given the fact that we've already focused in on other elements of Christ's saving work as mediator this morning, I'd like to narrow down the question a bit. Why exactly do we need this function of Christ's mediatorial work? Because you understand that a moment ago I said the word mediator and intercessor as if they were interchangeable. They're not exactly interchangeable because the office of the mediator includes intercession, but that's not all it includes. So the question is, why exactly do we need this present intercessory work of Christ? And the answer might surprise you. Without the present intercessory work of Christ, our salvation would be incomplete. Without the present work of Christ, our salvation would be incomplete. We see this in our text, Hebrews 7.25, where the author writes, consequently, he is able, Jesus Christ is able 
to save to the uttermost. That means to save completely those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Very simply, our being saved to the uttermost, that is our salvation being complete, is dependent, in part, upon Jesus' intercession. Now you may be thinking, what about the cross? Is it not sufficient? Didn't Jesus say while he was on the cross, it is finished? We just heard that, didn't we? If so, then how how is it that something post-Calvary, something that is being done for us even right now, is somehow necessary for our salvation? Well, the first thing that we ought to acknowledge is that Jesus' words, it is finished, did not mean that anything and everything following his suffering would somehow be inconsequential to his salvation. After all, what followed his suffering? His resurrection. And we all know that our salvation would be incomplete without the resurrection, right? As Paul writes in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The words, it is finished, certainly meant that propitiation was accomplished. That is to say, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. He is the wrath absorber, as we heard. The wrath of God was satisfied for the sake of the elect. Make no mistake, the cross purchased our pardon. Amen? Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross. Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Once for all sacrifice. However, the application of of this sacrifice and the assurance of our salvation and our preservation in the gospel are made complete through the means of Christ's intercession for us. The Dutch theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel said it this way in his work, The Christian's Reasonable Service, quote, for men to be saved It was not sufficient that by his suffering, death, and holiness he merited salvation, but it is also necessary that by means of his intercession he would apply salvation and make them actual partakers of it. Just as under the old covenant the work of the high priest on the day of atonement included both sacrifice and intercession behind the veil, So now Jesus' work as our great high priest does not only include the oblation, the offering of a sacrifice, in which case, uh, by the way, uh, in which case he is both the offerer and the offering, but that's not it. It also includes his intercession in the true holy of holies. The cross is sufficient for the purchase and provision of salvation. But intercession is necessary by the plan of God for the application and assurance of salvation. It's important that we see this distinction. It's a biblical distinction. We need to recognize the distinction between the payment being made and the payment being applied. How many of you know the name Ricky Henderson? 
Okay? Ricky Henderson was an electrifying baseball player. Started in the year uh, 1979. Guess what his last year was? 2004. Can you believe that? In that amount of time, Ricky Henderson uh, really acquired quite the legendary status. Many, many stories swirl around about Ricky Henderson. He's almost like the Chuck Norris of baseball. Some stories are not true. Others actually have been confirmed by Ricky Henderson. He most notably played for the Oakland A's. And this story has been confirmed by Mr. Henderson himself. It is true. In fact, I've heard him tell this story. I could not find the audio clip, but it's a fantastic story. Just a, a couple years into his career. And they weren't making the kind of money, of course, that baseball players are making now. A couple of years into his career, he got from, from the Oakland A's a $1 million bonus check. Okay, that's big money. Uh, and, and, and the problem was, several months later, the Oakland A's office, the accounting department, called Ricky. And they said, where is that check? He said, there's a problem. The only $1 million check that we have written all year long was to you. And our books are off by, guess what, exactly $1 million. And so they said, where is the check? And Ricky said, well, it's hanging on my wall. <laughs> the guy on the other end said, why is it hanging on your wall? And Ricky said, I was so excited to be a millionaire that I put it up on my wall. I, I framed it, and it's on my wall. And the man on the other end of the line says, Ricky, you're not actually a millionaire if that check was never taken to the bank. When it comes to our salvation, guess what? Jesus Christ didn't just write the check that pays for our sins. He takes it to the bank. Because of his sacrifice and because of his intercessory work, our salvation is complete. So with this, we come to our third question. How can we be confident that our intercessor will be heard? How can we be confident that the Father will hear? We're going to look at two answers to this question. The first is because Jesus is our perfect high priest. We can see this explicitly throughout the book of Hebrews. And, of course, in chapter 7, verse 25, our text, there's one word especially here that we need to look at, and that is the word consequently. Or maybe your Bible says, therefore. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So from this verse, we've already seen that our being saved to the uttermost, that is, our complete salvation, is dependent upon Jesus' intercession. But this verse also teaches that Jesus' ability to intercede rests upon his qualification. Rests upon his qualification. This word, consequently, um, as you know, how, how many times have you heard someone say, when you see the word, therefore, you need to do what? See what it's there for, all right? It's not as fun to say that with the word consequently. It doesn't work quite the same. So I'm going to revert to a different translation than the English Standard Version here. Therefore, right? Therefore points back to the argument that the author of Hebrews has really develop, been developing all the way throughout the book up to this point. And it actually continues on, as we just heard last hour, after chapter 7 throughout the rest of the book. 
Jesus is our perfect high priest. If you look in the immediate context, this is exactly the argument the author of Hebrews is making. Jesus is our perfect high priest. Now there's so much here, and I'm going to do my best to summarize this point in, in just a few minutes. But looking back to the Old Testament, there really were only two kinds of priests. Illegitimate, and those who, even though they were legitimate, they were imperfect. In fact, far from it. The very best of priests were weak. They were still temporary. They would die, and then their sons would have to take up the cause after them. And even during one high priest ministry, even if he was a good high priest, guess what? He had to offer sacrifices over and over and over again. So weak, temporary, and sinful. So all words that would describe the priesthood in the, under the Old Covenant. But the, argue, the argument that the author of Hebrews makes is that when Jesus came, Jesus completely broke the mold. By the way, he, he, he broke the mold to, to such a degree that he could, he could be both a priest and a king. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, the kings came from what tribe? Judah, right? And the priests, did they come from Judah? No, they came from what, what tribe? Levi, right? So what happened when a king in the Old Testament, a king of Judah, would try to do the work of a priest? Did that ever happen? Remember in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, Uzziah? He took on a role that he should not have, and the Bible says explicitly that it was because his heart was lifted up in pride. So he took on a role that he should not have, he tried to go into the holy place and offer incense on the altar of incense and there were 81 priests there to get in his way and say, don't do this. It was very clear. This was not his role. He did it anyway. And what happened? Instantly. He was struck with leprosy and he had leprosy until he died. So you couldn't really mix those offices of priest and king. But Jesus, who is of what tribe? Judah, can be both king and priest because he was appointed by God a priest after the order, not of the Aaronic priesthood, but after the order of Melchizedek. We find that in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I wish we had more time to talk about this. It's fascinating. It would be a great study for you to do on your own at some point, but for now, suffice it to say that Jesus' priestly role after the order of Melchizedek was superior in every way to the priesthood of Aaron. Jesus was appointed not by birth, but by oath. Jesus was not sinful. He was sinless. Jesus was truly human, the God-man, and yet, total, and yet truly God. He was not temporary. He was permanent. And consequently, because of this, because that whole argument, if, if we were to reach back into earlier into Hebrews 7, this is part of the argument that the author of Hebrews is making, and then he says, consequently, because of all of that, because he's of a better priesthood, he's qualified to intercede. He's able to save to the uttermost. 
He's qualified to pass into the true holy of holies. He's qualified to be the mediator of a new covenant. Everything that the high priest did under the old covenant was merely a shadow of that which was to come. Everything that Jesus did and does is efficacious. Meaning, it always completely produces its intended goal. And in the words of Abrakel, once again, he says it's efficacious to the superlative degree. And forever. Under the old covenant, on the day of atonement, we've already heard some about this. On the day of atonement, the high priest would carry into the Holy of Holies with him a few things. One of them was some stones, that would be on his breastplate. He would also carry in his hands both blood and incense. The stones he would wear, they were embedded in his breastplate, they were over his heart. Do you remember what it was? There were 12 stones and they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. So when the high priest went in, he was representing the, the people of God. It was as if they were there through the representation of the priest. The blood that he brought in was from the sacrifice. He would carry that in his hands and he would sprinkle it over and in front of the mercy seat before the presence of Yahweh. And then the incense he would also take in his hands and he would put that on coals of fire before Yahweh. That symbolized the prayers of God's people. Stones, blood, and incense. So the high priest under the old covenant would not come into the Holy of Holies empty-handed. And neither does our great high priest. Our great high priest has passed through the heavens to the Holy of Holies in the presence of his Father. And guess what he bears on his heart? The names of his people. He represents his chosen ones there so that we can proclaim, I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Our great high priest also shows, he doesn't bring blood with his hands anymore, he shows his wounded hands from which his blood once drained. And those wounds now offer an efficacious plea of righteousness for all who are in him. And this ongoing intercession is only efficacious because it points back to what? That once for all sacrifice. We just sang it. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. And what do they do? They pour effectual prayers. Remember I talked before about, I guess I didn't explicitly say the fists of my brother could plead my case. The hands of our Savior plead our case. They make the prayer. And it is always heard. And not only that, our great high priest brings with him in his hands the prayers of those he came to save. So that we can pray, we can come to the Father with confidence and joy. And we can pray confidently because Jesus is praying for us. Well, that's an encouragement, isn't it? Have you ever been praying and, and you feel like, what am I doing these words are pouring out of my mouth. What is actually happening here? Are they going to work? 
Well, the prayer of our advocate is always heard. It's efficacious. And we pray with confidence because of that. Because of our priest, we, the people of God, are represented in the presence of God. We have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies, Paul says in the book of Ephesians. We are forgiven. We stand righteous in the presence of God. And we can offer prayer to God. So that's the first reason for why we can be confident that our intercessor will be heard by the Father. The second reason is this. I love this. Because all of this was the Father's plan in the first place. All of it was the Father's plan in the first place. In other words, we should never get the idea that the loving Son of God stands before God who is waiting to to just crush us if the Son were not there, as if the Father is reluctant to forgive. Nor should we get the idea that the Father is struggling with short-term memory loss. And so he, he, he's, we're really lucky, we're really fortunate we have the great high priest there because otherwise he'd say, what? why am I forgiving these people again? Oh, that's right, you, you did your, the cross work for them. No. This is something that is not explicitly stated in the book of Hebrews. It is stated elsewhere, many, many places. It's implied in Hebrews. This is just a sampling of the text we could go to to show that all of this was the Father's plan in the first place. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the plan of the Father. This is the Father's gift. God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. John 17.2 says this, This is, uh, by the way, really fascinating to read John 17, what we would call the high priestly prayer. Maybe we could call it the earthly high priestly prayer of Christ in John 17. He says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, and catch this, to give eternal life to whom? To all whom you have given him. So all those who inherit eternal life, how did they inherit eternal life? It's because they were given to the Son by the Father. Psalm 2.8 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the end of the earth your possession. That's, That's the Lord talking to his anointed. He's saying, you ask me this, it's already granted. The answer is yes. And that is entirely dependent on exactly what Jesus prayed in John 17, at the very beginning of the book when he said, or the very very beginning of the chapter when he said, "The, the hour has come, glorify your son. And in John, the glorification is what? It's the lifting up of the son of man. That's his glorification. So what does all of this mean for us? I guess that's a fourth question. I guess I deceived you. What does all of this mean for us? Well, first of all, this says a lot about how we should view God. It's a a pretty basic take. A pretty basic application, but think about it. 
We heard earlier from Aaron Browning that the intersection of God's transcendence and imminence is where? It's, at, it's, it's in the gospel, right? And, and we revisit the truth of the gospel as we remember the fact that Jesus, our great high priest, our mediator, intercedes for us always. Here's what that means. We don't just waltz into the throne room of God. We don't just come into the court in and of our own righteousness, our own efforts, not at all. Anytime we come and we, we call on the Father, we do so through the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of his intercessory work for us. I've talked to many people. It's a common idea in evangelicalism, especially for those who have come out of a religion where they did have a priest, so-called. For them to say, you know, I used to have a priest, but now I don't need one anymore. Now I just talk directly to God. False. You do get to go to the Father. But have you considered how important the work of your great high priest is? By the way, just this is totally for free, but I would, I would actually say that um, in, in my experience, probably the most effective way to evangelize those who are currently Catholic or maybe grew up Catholic is to talk about the high priestly nature of Christ and the exclusivity of his priestly nature. The fact that he is the only one, given all that we've looked at here and a lot that we haven't looked at here, the fact that he is the only one. You don't need the prayers of some co-redemptress. <laughs> there is no such thing. There is one redeemer. You don't need the prayers of some saints that have gone on to heaven. Why? Because the prayers of Jesus Christ are sufficient. They are efficacious. Why go beyond that or stop short of that when we actually are in him? So this is a lens for us to see the imminence of God in the person of Christ, the God-man, without sacrificing our view of God's transcendence. Secondly, this renders us secure, confident. I want you to turn for a moment to Romans chapter 8. There is no passage that helps us understand our security more than Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. And I'm going to read through it for us. And I want you to notice what is right at the heart of it. Okay? You'll see that in, in verse 34 as we read through Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Can I be so bold as to say, therefore, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. 
we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see that intercession is right at the heart of that? So we can be secure. I've heard this already this morning. How many times do we base our presence in the throne room of God on our own performance? We don't think that way. But let me show you kind of a back door to how we sometimes do process that, okay? How many of you, and I want you to just be honest, okay? How many of you have ever not prayed because you feel guilty about something you just did? You felt like you needed to be in the doghouse for a while. Anybody? Isn't that kind of a backwards way of understanding how we think about our own entrance into the throne room? How long does that take, by the way, for God to stop being angry and then we can come into his presence? What changes? Guess what? Nothing changes. We always have an advocate before the Father on our behalf. So go in with confidence, draw near with a full heart of assurance. Commune with the Father in his love. There is security, there is confidence. John Flavel said it this way, if the head, Christ, be above water, the body cannot drown. So our view of God is affected by this, our security, our confidence is affected by this, and also our joy. How can our joy How can our joy be weak? I understand we have hardship. I understand there are trials. But believer, brother and sister in Christ, Jesus Christ is right now before the throne of the Father for you. Your name is graven on his hands. Your name is written on his heart. Again, we know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue, not even the accuser of the brethren, not even our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, he has nothing on this advocate. The prayer that the blood makes to the Father, it's, it's, it's a, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, we're told, in Hebrews chapter 12. That blood makes such a loud and clear argument in the ears of the Father that it actually acts as noise cancellation over the cry of the adversary. It will not be heard for those who are in Christ. We are secure. We can draw near with a full heart of assurance and with joy. Praise God for the gift of Jesus Christ, our mediator, who even now is interceding for us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you It is overwhelming to consider the truth that we've considered today from your word, the reality of who Jesus is, the reality of what he has done for us, and even now as as we speak, as we utter these words of prayer to you and praise to you, they come to you loud and clear through the ministry of our Savior and our Lord. May we come into your presence more often, more confident, and more joyful because of this reality. 
We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.